0: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
1: I don't believe that the crooks that did it um, realised exactly how much they got away with, and when they would have realised, you know, they would have known that getting away with a couple of hundred pounds or a couple of thousand pounds would be forgotten. But to get away with that much, you know, they were going to get caught. No one was going to forget that.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, and you're listening to Crimes NZ, its a podcast where I talk to people connected in some way or another with New Zealand's most serious crimes. In this episode, true crime writer Scott Bainbridge takes us back to 1956, when Auckland mobsters made off with the equivalent of a million dollars in today's money after breaking into the Waterfront Industry Commission's offices. It's one of the most brazen robberies in New Zealand history.
1: Yeah, look in the 1950s a lot of the, the crime that was going on was yeah, the safe breaking. Um, the, the guys would break into businesses or factories and, and blow the safes and would make off with whatever money they could. Um, now the old sort of aggravated robberies you know, of banks and such like didn't sort of start occurring till the late 1960s. So a lot of the crime that was committed back then you know was done in darkness um, and nobody was was, was being heard apart from the um, the people that lost all their money.
0: Yeah, and and who was doing the crime? Can you give us a bit of a description of this uh, New Zealand underbelly of the mid-century?
1: Yeah, look, I think a lot of the media um, over the years have sort of played out these guys to be sort of big, tough, sort of, you know violent gangsters when, uh, you know, I think back in the 50s and 60s, you know, I've heard that you could just come to Auckland or whatever place you wanted to go, get off the bus, and by the end of the day, you had a job. So, there were, you know, there were jobs for everybody. Um, But these were guys that didn't want to work and um, just wanted the easy lifestyle, and they had particular skills. Um, If you wanted, for instance, to break in and blow up a safe uh, and you were involved... On the fringes of the crime scene, you'd know guys that, you know, had a particular skill, um, you know, whether it was blowing up a safe or doing a suit job, which was the, you know, the old mobster term for um, cutting open a, a safe by using oxygen and acetylene, you know, just cut, sort of uh, burning off the top of the safe and, and opening it up. So it would be like it would resemble a suit can and sort of taking off the money. So, you know, there were, you know, there were people
0: with particular skills. <laughs> yeah, to coin a phrase. And um, who were some of these people?
1: Uh, well, it was, it was a reasonably small element of people. And a lot of the research I've done with the two books I've written about this, sort of the old gangster scene of Auckland, uh, have basically been centered in Auckland. And well, um, the first book I did, which was about the Bassett Road Machine Gun Murders, um, yeah, that covered a, a whole range of you know different crooks. Um, when I came to do the the prequel to that, which obviously came out later, which is about the uh, waterfront payroll robbery, I found during the research that the same names that kept appearing, you know, the same guys that, you know, that would be found in the sly grogs and, um, you know, that would be arrested for whatever crimes. So there was a reasonably small percentage of guys um, and and women as well um, in Auckland at that time that, um, and they all knew each other, they all associated with one another. And one thing I did learn is that, you know, a lot of the jobs, the criminal jobs were actually... Planned and organised at the various sly grogs, the illegal sly grogs. So this is the era of six o'clock closing, where you couldn't get a drink after six o'clock. So some enterprising individuals, uh, you know, usually operated on the fringes of the crime world, would open up their homes at night and sell beer and 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 watered down rum, etc. And uh, these were sort of found. You know, scattered around Auckland but also in other cities in the, around the country. And crooks would associate themselves with a particular beer house so you might have a favored beer house that you'd go to and there'd be a guy here that you that you might have committed a, a job with and you know and if you wanted to, to go and commit another crime somewhere else but you heard sort of through the grapevine that John down the road he goes to another beer house you know you could link up with him. But attached to a lot of these spare houses were um, – because you know, there was gambling, such as the, the Crown and Anchor games and the, the two-up, which was usually run by um, some of the crooks, and some of them were, would carry a two-headed coin for the two-up game you know, yeah. so that the house was always going to win. But there, was, there were, like, um, private madams who would associate themselves with a particular beer house, so if you wanted to go. And a lot of the patrons who usually is, uh, frequented the beer houses were sailors, you know, off the boat. The boat would come in after 6 o'clock. There's no way to get a drink or a girl, and so they'd go to a beer house, and, and you know, the madams would send the girls down and charge £5 pounds for their services, and the, the beer house would get, or the slide rod would get a cut of that.
0: Who was the ringleader of the sort of mob scene in Auckland? Any famous names at the time? There weren't any um, any kingpins,
1: but um, Archie Banks was probably the one that was mostly connected with a lot of the bear houses and knew a lot of the crooks and also knew a lot of, um, you know, the crimes that were going down and also knew, you know, where the best places were to go. And so Archie Banks um, himself he had blown up some safes. And when I interviewed his son, um, John Banks, um, John was... Um, found himself an unwittingly uh, getaway driver when his dad went down to, you know, to get some meat from a warehouse and it was in the middle of the night and um, the glass front of the meat factory blew out onto the road and his dad was running up the road with all the spent money in the satchel, you know. So this is not the John on.
0: Banks I um, wanted to clarify.
1: Yes, it is the John Banks. Is it? So his dad was, um, Archie was, um, you know, pretty well connected with a lot of the crime. And and I remember um, when I interviewed John, you know, I remember him saying that his dad was, you know, really nice. He'd be, you know, shake your hand and introduce himself and be really nice. But in his mind, he'd be thinking about ways in which he could rip you off.
0: (laughs) And wasn't thinking that his son would one day be the uh, Minister of Police, no doubt.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Tell us about this waterfront payroll robbery then. Where did this fit in? What happened
1: Well, the, water, yeah, the Waterfront Industry Commission, was um, that was the organisation that paid all the cargo workers. So you know, the number of cargo workers or wharfside workers, there were thousands around the country. And so the offices of the Auckland Waterfront Industry Commission was, was situated across the road in the Northern Steamship Company building, which today still exists. It's a heritage building. It's a pub now. And so the night before payday, which was obviously going to be a huge payroll, um, some guys broke into it and and tried to blow up the safe. And when they found it, it was unsuccessful. It was the type of safe that that couldn't be blown up, you know, for whatever reason, the way it was made. Um, And so they went away and they got someone with the skills to do a soup job and they they burned open the top of the safe and took, yeah, the equivalent of close to a million dollars in today's money. And it was the, the amount of money that... No one in the years since, up until sort of the beginning of this century, have replicated. So it was a huge sum of money. And um, I don't believe that the crooks that did it um, realised exactly how much they got away with. And when they would have realised, you know, they would have known that getting away with a couple of hundred pounds or a couple of thousand pounds would be forgotten. But to get away with that much, you know, they were going to get caught. No one was going to forget that. And it had a huge political ramification as well, because... Mr. Bockett, who was the president of the Waterfront Industry Commission, also assisted yeah, the government five years earlier with the um, on the waterfront strikes, and it was a really controversial time. And his contact was John Marshall, who later became prime minister. And John Marshall, if you have read some of the other history books out there, he was the Minister of Justice at that time, and and he was they call him sort of the hanging judge because you know he was responsible for you know signing the the hanging notices on on a number of guys yeah. who. Um, you know, that committed murder, but may have got off on, you know, with, in today's legalities. So John Marshall sort of implored the, the police to, to keep going, but, you know, they couldn't find anybody for it. And then sort of over a year and a half later, there was a, a petty criminal called Trevor Nash, who was going from shop to shop, tendering 10 pound notes. And sort of back then, 10 pounds was worth $500 today. So what he was doing is, going into a dairy and buying say you know a newspaper and and, and giving you know 10 pounds for it and and he was going from shop to shop doing this making little purchases this is his way of um laundering the money but you know it was a friday morning and a lot of the shop assistants were having to rush off to the bank to get change because they didn't you know they didn't have change and so as they're all passing each other in the street before morning tea saying oh we've had this guy come and giving it a 10 pound note and found it was a um So the the police were alerted and and they caught up with him and they found a car full of, um, you know, ballpoint pens and and newspapers and magazines and um, a small sum of money. When they arrested Trevor Nash, he was never on their radar. Um, But, you know, found out later that Trevor was the type of guy that could, A, blow up a safe and he could also, he was one of about five crooks, I think, that could, in that time, that could do a soup job. So um, he was arrested and charged and um, got the maximum term imprisonment, which was in seven years. But um, a, a couple of years into his sentence, on a Friday afternoon, he escaped from Mount Eden Prison. And how that's amazing, was, isn't it? Was, yeah. Well, it was just amazing because Trevor never mentioned anything to anybody about um, you know who else was on the job, and yeah, he he went to he eventually sort of I think um, knew that he wasn't going to get anywhere with the authorities, and so he managed to secure himself a job in one of the uh, workshops in the prison yard and um, on this particular Friday afternoon in 1961 he would make excuses with his job to sort of, you know, go out of the shed and and then he'd come back and what he was actually doing was he managed to acquire some tin snips and he was going to the perimeter and just, you know, cutting a few pieces of the fence away and then just after three o'clock he never came back and As I say, it was a Friday afternoon. It was the second Friday of the month. And at that particular time, every month, the um, prison sounded the the escape alarm just to practice, you know, just as a test. And so when... They sounded it for real that afternoon. No one really, you know, the police didn't really sort of do anything about it because they wow. thought it was just another test. And then it was a, a, And I know that this would have been out of Triffitt's control. But by the time the, you know, the police did eventually turn up about an hour later, it just um just bucketed down with rain, and so the um, police dog couldn't get a scent. And so you know he made away with it, and his you know probably his escape was captured more headlines than the robbery itself because there were people were encouraged to, you know, be on the lookout. And, in fact, I, I say in the book, The Great New Zealand Robbery, that um, there was one poor guy from Australia who just arrived in the country about a week later, and he had the misfortune of looking like Trevor Nash, and he was arrested three times in one week, you know, because people thought it was him. And so, in the end, he got back on the boat and went back to Australia vowing never to return. Um, but, yeah, Trevor... Um, remained on the run for about seven months. And then, um, and again, purely coincidentally, um, he managed to make his way over to Melbourne. And there was a detective in Melbourne who, when Trevor escaped in the February, the Talex machine sort of burst into life over in Melbourne and, and of an escaped criminal, you know, be on the lookout in case he shows up. Well, seven months later, this detective sees, you know, Trevor at a cafe in Melbourne and said, I think that's the guy that escaped from New Zealand, you know, seven months ago and arrested him on the spot. So, I mean, that was remarkable in itself. This guy had a photographic memory and Trevor sort of was extradited back to New Zealand.
0: Sounds like a bit of a character old Trevor. Did, did he ever talk about the robbery and, and whether he was, in fact, the person responsible?
1: I never met Trevor, um he passed away sort of in the early two thousands and but I managed to track down um some of the guys that you know worked with him on some of the jobs and, and in fact, I managed to track down an old crook who um you know he he admitted to me that he worked in a shop next door at Mount Eden and gave Trevor the tin snips in which you know he could cut his way out but the few people that do that i you know, did talk to um, one of the family members. I talked to. You know, recalled. You know, inviting Trevor to his wedding, and um, you know, Trevor made off with some of the wedding presents. You know, on that <laughs> night. So he was that he was that type of character, probably in the same vein as Archie Banks. He'd be looking, you know, a way to to um, you know, to rip you off. I had a great deal of trouble tracking down immediate family members uh, of Trevor, but I, I did after the book came out, unfortunately. And I uh, had a good chat with them, and you know, they are of the opinion that Trevor um, committed the robbery by himself because he was the type of guy that was you know, quite selfish and he would very much keep to himself. He was very much a loner. However, um, I was lucky when I did the research for this book, um, The Great New Zealand Robbery, is that I had access, I was able to get access thanks to the Police National Headquarters to the actual files. And there's evidence or there's detail in there to suggest that it was um, more than you know a one-man job. And I do say that in my book, um, that there was... Five, if not six, people involved. Without obviously giving too much of the the game away, but there were definitely two men um, that were involved uh, and from the outset, and we, and they tried to blow up the safe. And when they realised they couldn't, um, they had to go off searching for somebody who could, not and that's where I suggest that perhaps Trevor, being one of five guys in Auckland that could do a soup job, yeah, you know, they corralled him to come and do it. And also, I believe it was an inside job that there's somebody that actually worked at the Industry Commission building may have given them the tip-off that, uh, you know, a Tuesday night was the right, you know, best night to go and rob it. There was obviously a getaway driver, um, because there was a car that was seen speeding away, um, and also... The waterfront itself um, used to employ retired old sailors to, you know, wander the Key Street and Custom Street, you know, act as security guards for anybody trying to sneak onto the wharves. So there was one um, older guy that was, you know, patrolling that particular area. And, and when, you know, they talked to him, you know, he said he didn't see a thing. However, they found out later that, you know, he was associated with, you know, some of the other, um, you know, safe blowers um, that used to drink at one of the notorious pubs there in Auckland.
0: Yeah. What an amazing era. Um, did everyone sort of eventually grow out of it? I mean, I imagine there were cops and, uh, and mobsters at the time who knew each other pretty well, but they, they would have grown old together, would they?
1: Yeah, they did. And um, one of the the detectives would say that, you know, if there was a big job that went down on a particular weekend, they'd just dud phone or go and visit all of the sly the Sligrogs to find out, you know, who was the big spenders on the weekend. And that's usually how they got the crooks. I know that I had the, the my book launch for the Great New Zealand Robbery in the um, Northern Steamship Company building where the robbery took place. And I invited um, a number of, you know, the retired detectives that were involved with the consorting squad in the 1960s. And I remember one of them, you know, coming up to me and they brought along an elderly chap and, and introduced me. And they said, oh, this is Johnny. Um, I arrested him, you know, years ago for blowing up a couple of safes, you know, five safes or something like that. And Johnny sort of looked at him and goes, yeah, but you, you didn't arrest me for, you know, about 15 other jobs I did. And it's, it cracked me <laughs> up. And, and um, you know, there's there's a group of, of retired detectives and a group of old crooks, you know, that, you know, they do get together, you know, every so often and, and, and have a chin about the good old days, which I think is quite nice. And, you know, it'd be hard to, to fathom that the cops and the crooks, you know, of today would, you know, do that in 20, 30 years' yeah. time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. There are plenty more episodes on the RNZ Podcasts page, and you can find them on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. If you're looking for something a little different, check out Our Changing World, or Voices, two weekly podcasts that really get you thinking. Our Changing World tells stories from science and the environment, while Voices tells the stories of people from a diverse global background both programs air on my afternoon show on RNZ National. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Muscal and Andrew Scott.